1: All right, we are uh, we're in the Studio C in Corey, well, McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, July twentieth, two thousand twelve. This week show two fifty two comes to you from the studio in McKees Rocks. We're still working our way into the new one, and my name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is the Z Man, Cliff
0: Zlotnick. Joe, it's it's good to be here, but I'm glad it's Friday. <laughs> I hear you. We both were on the road
1: all week. I uh, flew back into Pittsburgh last night and we're at the controls. And really operating the controls is our engineer, <laughs> Roxy V. Val Bender. All right. Joining us in a little bit uh, will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. An interview with Mr. Bruce Jacobs, the president of Industrial Hygiene Consulting Inc. in Abington, Maryland. We'll have our halftime. We'll go to the uh, back to the interview, and then finish with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors, Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.net. ClaimsNow.com
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at IEConnections.com John
1: Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, dot com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: All right. To listen to the show, go to com. There's a link at the top that says go to the show. If you want to listen live, click that link. Go to the talk shoe website and sign in. If you want to stream the show afterwards, just go to our homepage. You can stream it right from there, or again, go to the Go to the Show link, and you can right-click on Download, save it to your favorite MP3 player. Of course, you can also get the show from iTunes. We have continuing education credits available for ABIH, the IICRC, and ACAC just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com We'll get you a quiz out. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio
0: trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To John Lapotere, Microshield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first person to identify the rapid expansion of air surrounding the lightning bolt as what's responsible for the sound of thunder. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, July twentieth, 2012, has been sponsored by Cochran and Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Learn more about their services by phoning them at 602-510-3179 or going to their new website, iaqtv.com. Now for this week's trivia question, Val, the envelope, please. Name the document which is an important component of product stewardship and workplace safety which is intended to provide workers and emergency personnel with procedures for handling or working with that substance in a safe manner and includes information such as physical data, toxicity, health effects, first aid, reactivity, storage, disposal, protective equipment, and spill handling procedures. Back to you, Joe.
1: All right. Thanks, Cliff. Today's guest is Mr. Bruce Jacobs. Bruce is the owner of Industrial Hygiene Consulting, president and principal consultant. He has a certified industrial hygienist certification and a degree in environmental health engineering from John Hopkins University, a master's degree in environmental health engineering. And uh, he's been a consultant in the industrial hygiene and IAQ world for 38 years working in environmental safety and health. His experience has been really unique in a lot of ways, with a wide-ranging breadth and depth. He has an experience as a chemist, toxicologist, industrial hygienist, and environmental manager. Worked with federal, state, and local government, government and uh, numerous types of companies, just about any kind you can imagine. He has uh, also did quite a bit in the U.S. Army, as a part of their. Uh, industrial hygiene team managed some of the uh, daily operations at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds and has been very active in the last 10 years at the Industrial Hygiene Consulting, Inc., and uh, prior to that, Jacobs Environmental in Maryland, Aberdeen, uh, in the Maryland area. I want to say Aberdeen, but I don't have it on my list here. I think we have some music, uh, Abington, uh, uh, we have some music for the intro.
2: To flash
1: it down the oh, we have some. there it is That's a good one, Cliff. I like that. Hello, Bruce. Do we have you on the line?
3: Yes, I am here. Thank you for the introduction. Very uh, kind of you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. We uh, we really appreciate having you. And, I, you know, you've been around for quite a while. I, we were talking a little before the show. And um, you're from from a close, not too far away from each other, Cumberland. And apparently you were in um, WVU. I didn't mention that prior to Mm -hmm. moving on to John Hopkins. And then you were saying you moved over to the Maryland area in about 75. Is that correct? Uh,
3: 74, yes. Okay. Um, Yeah, I uh, graduated from uh, WVU in uh, 72. And then... uh, Found a job at Aberdeen Proving Ground in 1974.
1: Okay. What What were you doing at Aberdeen?
3: Well, I worked for at that point uh, the agency was called the Army's Environmental Hygiene Agency. Essentially, we were the internal consultants for the Army in you know all kinds of environmental and occupational health issues. And uh, it's currently referred to as CHIPM, the Center for Health Promotion and Preventive Medicine.
1: Yeah, that had to be an interesting position. I bet you had quite a few uh, interesting projects that you've worked on. Is there one in particular that stands out in your mind?
3: Well, there were quite a number of interesting issues. I mean, I certainly really relished the opportunity to work there because, as you can imagine, the Army gets involved in so many unique um uh, aspects of occupational health and uh, environmental issues. I guess one um, one project that comes to mind, this was towards the end of my career there, was uh, there was a congressional delegation, as the story goes, that came through Aberdeen Proving, Aberdeen Proving Ground to uh, review some of the aspects of military masks and protective ensembles. And, it was noticed that by that delegation that there was a little bit of charcoal being emitted by the filters in these masks, and so somebody said, "Well, there's chromium in that charcoal." And so we did a big study that evaluated how much charcoal was being released under normal use conditions, and then uh, basically turned a lot of information based on our initial work as to how much charcoal is being emitted over to the National Research Council, um, and they did a, a risk assessment to determine whether there was any significant risk from the inhalation of those charcoal finds that had the uh, you know small amount of hexavalent chromium on it. So you know, we were out in the field in hot summer days with uh, some conscripted military uh, trainees that were at Aberdeen. and. They were going over uh, obstacle courses with the masks on and tossing them back and forth in the field to kind of simulate some rough treatment. And and all the time we had personal sampling pumps trying to pull the charcoal (laughs) that was being released. So we were taking charcoal or taking filter samples with personal sampling pumps during uh, during all those exercises. So that was kind of a unique experience.
1: I've I've got a a text from a listener here already that uh, he asked what was the most dangerous product i guess that you that you worked with
3: well are you allowed to say it. bruce let's put it that way yeah. well i didn't work with this one myself but after i finished my career you know working for the army as a civilian employee I also did some consulting work as they were developing some of their chemical demil plants. And part of the uh, process in uh, demilitarizing, neutralizing um, the agent VX, a nerve agent, um, there was actually a an, an intermediate product that was formed that was more toxic than the VX itself. So uh, I was involved with... Uh, doing a little bit of toxicological research, coming up with uh, some proposed uh, worker exposure standard for that product and helping interface with the facility designers to recommend airflows, containments, uh, personal protective equipment for people that had to potentially access some parts of that operation. Hmm. So that was kind of a unique experience. You know, VXs. Certainly an extremely toxic substance in its own right, but then uh, understanding that during the um, the process of trying to make that benign, a more toxic product was formed uh, uh, as an intermediate product, so that was kind of shocking at first to understand that, but then uh, you know we were able to deal with it, so that was fulfilling to be able to do that
1: you know that it just brings up something that I've been reading about lately, and on these LinkedIn groups, they become addictive after a while, but, um, you know, ozone is used, has been used over the years, and people claim it helps indoor air quality, I'm just curious, about, you know, and, and what you when you mentioned it, it broke down into something else, that would make me think about the ozone, and the use of ozone in yeah. indoor environments, have you done much work with ozone, have you looked at how that breaks down other, into other byproducts?
3: I haven't had a chance to do any research or testing in that regard, but certainly I agree with what I understand the EPA's recommendation is on that. That you know, because ozone is so reactive, uh, you know, there's concern, as you say, about ozone breaking down VOCs and potentially other toxic and maybe more toxic components than what you're originally dealing with, but. You know, to me, it's, it all goes back to the fact that you know, if you've got a chance for this ozone to be in the air, you don't want to have anybody be in that area uh, to uh, potentially breathe the ozone in and uh, start to, to destroy their lung tissue. So, I, I certainly, in my practice, I always advise people to stay away from anything that uh, can generate ozone
1: any Any thoughts on the, the more recently I've seen more of these what they call hydroxyl radical generators or something like that? I know this is kind of off the subject, but I also had a text on it. Um, are you familiar with those at all?
3: I am not okay yeah, that's that's a new area for me. I have not encountered
1: that well, one of the reasons we we brought you on was we wanted to talk a little bit just about you know the d c area and the Maryland area. You recently got just whacked with some uh, storms that caused quite a disruption i don't recall what those were called they had a special term for that type of of storm do you know what that was
3: well yes it was a new term for us too we ordinarily would not get these in the uh, dc maryland uh, maryland area it's called a derecho it's spelled d-e-r-e-c-h-o derecho has a spanish um, uh, origin it's basically a very fast-moving front with high winds, and so um, you know we certainly experienced that. And it was quite frightening and did an incredible amount of damage, but it, you know, it did not come with the accompanying um, heavy rains that we uh, sometimes get with the storms here in Maryland. So all of our damage was pretty much limited to, to wind damage, but it was very, very extensive.
1: Well, the electric was out in some areas for, it seemed like a week or so, Cliff. was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, there
3: were uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million people that uh, were out of power here in Maryland for uh, seven to nine days. And I understand that uh, it was even worse in some parts of West Virginia down around the Charleston area.
1: And with all the work you've done with government and with, with the military, et cetera, um, I'm just curious how how can the the electric be out that long in in the DC area yeah. no,
0: it's it's I think what happens is we fail to do work on the grid uh, I think what's happened is we're losing some power plants you know you have a lot of governmental regulations and things like that that are coming into effect and you know we've shut plants down Bruce, what was yeah, there's, there's a lot of talk here in
3: maryland about the um the, the preparedness of our local utilities and we had deregulation a number of years ago thinking that was going to be a good thing and now most people are thinking it wasn't and uh, so people are pointing fingers and trying to get uh, people to take better actions you know there's calls for putting all the lines underground but of course that's millions and millions of dollars to do that. Uh, there are certain areas in Maryland where some lines are underground but most of it's still above ground.
1: Well I'm curious, you know, we we talk about indoor air quality, building science, disaster restoration. That event kind of, you know, it hit all three. I'm, I'm although you there was no not a lot of rain or, or water along with the storm, what other ways have you heard of or have you been involved with projects that were affected, the indoor air quality was somehow affected by that type of event.
3: Well, basically that event resulted in the loss of electrical power as we stated but um, I haven't heard of any specific indoor air quality concerns uh, for that week long event here just that just passed, although there could be and just haven't heard about them. But um, certainly One area we experience quite regularly is with school systems that uh, shutter their doors over the summer months, and then they come back September 1st or thereabouts and open up and find all this uh, white fuzz growing on carpeting, etc., and they wonder how that happens, so basically it was the lack of uh, environmental control within their building, within the rooms that, uh, you know, that elevated humidity we get in the summer just sits there and serves as the, uh, the moisture source for the mold that we all know about, so I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't have some of those problems because we did have incredibly high humidity, too during this uh, recent storm.
0: It would also seem, you know, lack of electrical power. You know, restaurants are going to be vulnerable. Be, you know, be, their food's going to be yeah. vulnerable. Food they're probably... Oh, sure, with, yeah, all
3: that food had to be thrown away. Know,
0: freezers and refrigerators and things like that. Worst part is the beer distributors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poor guys. Poor guys, right. <laughs> well, you know, you...
1: Somewhere along the way, I don't remember exactly where in your, in your bio, I saw that you had authored some technical bulletins that were dealing with different types of indoor air quality issues for the State Department of Education. And I also noticed you do a lot of work with schools. And, and I was just trying to get your, your, your opinion on how Maryland handles indoor air quality issues and has that changed over the years.
3: Well, yeah, certainly over the years it has changed. Uh, We have a a number of county school systems that are uh, the environmental offices are headed by very proactive individuals uh, that I'm aware of, and some of them have been very active with establishing good IAQ programs for their schools and have been recognized by the EPA with their you know, iq uh, tools for schools program and so maryland is uh, has been you know, primarily because of these individuals that are in these uh, local school system offices have been very proactive and are very at the forefront of uh, handling iq unfortunately we still have some other systems that are lacking in funds and uh, some of the proper perspective that I guess goes along with the fact that they've got bigger fish to fry in their school systems than worrying about IAQ sometimes like uh, you know Baltimore City struggles to maintain their schools uh, some, some of the basic maintenance goes lacking because of very you know various reasons with funding cutbacks they uh, as we have experienced a lot of times the uh, regular maintenance, is some of the first uh, areas that get cut back. So Baltimore City has suffered with that. Now they're faced with needing billions of dollars to uh, refurbish or uh, build new schools. So they're trying to address that at this point. So I I guess the the bottom line is it, it, it all comes down to having some good key people in place that understand these issues and are aggressive about, Implementing these uh, programs and taking advantage of what the EPA has to offer and other groups like that,
0: Bruce. In terms of the technical bulletins, um, is any of this information uh, accessible, you know, to our listeners? Um, you know, can they get a hold of these documents or can they read uh, and learn from this information?
3: Yeah, some of that information is a little dated at this point. This was uh, developed back in the uh, late 80s early 90s and so it's getting a little dated but some of it's still good and these bulletins have been available through the epa because they were developed primarily through the use of epa funds so if you go on the epa website with the ieq uh, i haven't looked for it in a while myself i know they uh, they had those bulletins available so it was uh Again, there were technical bulletins developed uh, with EPA funds for the Maryland State Department of Education, MSDE. So the EPA may still have them available, and uh, possibly if people were very interested and want to do a little bit more tracking down, the uh, Maryland State Department of Education would be a, a good uh, office to try to contact and uh, reach out to them. They, they should probably still have those documents available.
1: Thanks. You know, at, at an earlier point in your career, I believe it was, you, you developed a gas chromatographic analytical methods and, and validated some of the initial uses of diffusion-based sampling and the analytical methods for air contaminants. And, and this was when you were a chemist at the U.S. Army. First, let's, right. let's get some of that terminology. What is diffusion-based sampling?
3: Well, yeah, it's just, uh, I guess, maybe a little bit more of a technical term for um, uh, the badges people wear that have charcoal uh, they have charcoal impregnated pads, so people are probably used to seeing those on individuals, and um, they have been primarily used in the past for organic vapors, anything that charcoal uh, would absorb, then the... Uh, The the, the general idea is if you are wearing this badge, uh, you you have lower sampling rates, but at the same time, then, you don't need a sampling pump. So you don't need to burden a worker down or an individual to carry around a pump or a couple pumps on their belt to sample. You can just put these badges on, and the diffusion rate of these different organic contaminants are, uh, are generally known. So you can calculate the sampling rate. So we were fortunate again there at the uh, Army's Environmental Hygiene Agency to to be able to do some of the initial studies to validate the operation of those badges and uh, compare them to the uh, the active sampling methods using a uh, sampling pump.
1: And how so well do they compare
3: it operates on the basis of diffusion?
1: Yes. How well do they compare with active sampling using a pump?
3: Oh, very good, very good. Um, as I mentioned, there these uh, sampling rates, the diffusion rates are known for uh, probably hundreds at this at this point, hundreds of different contaminants. So uh, you can vary the um, the length that the, the air has to diffuse over to get from the air close to the worker or whoever's wearing the badge to the charcoal pads so based on that uh, that length of path of diffusion and understanding um, how uh, what the rate is that these molecules of the gases, vapors, travel through the air. You can come up with a sampling rate and then be able to determine whether the charcoal will collect enough enough of the uh, the vapor to uh, to reach your detection limits.
1: Well, can we can you give us a a concrete example of one you know one chemical that you're looking at and using this diffusion badge you know diffusion based sampling with a little badge um, and maybe a an idea of what typical exposures are like.
3: Well. Probably the best known, especially for indoor air quality at this point, is formaldehyde. Most people sample formaldehyde now using one of several different badges that are available on the market. So uh, it operates under the same principle, only it's not charcoal that's absorbing the formaldehyde. So uh, formaldehyde is, uh, is probably the primary for indoor air quality that we think about. And, you know, we're able to see very low low, low levels. As you're probably aware, the uh, uh, levels of concern for formaldehyde are uh, pretty low. So, um, you know, you're talking, I'm you know, just looking at one of my sheets here, you're looking at 0.05 parts per million or 50 parts per billion or even lower as a level of concern for formaldehyde. So that is very low, and so it's kind of a, Quite an achievement to be able to have a badge like that that doesn't need a sampling pump and still be able to see at those low concentrations.
1: And how long would you someone know. wear that badge, Bruce? Typically, I mean, is it something you can well, wear it, for?
3: Yeah. Well, with indoor air, usually we don't have people wearing the badges. Uh, sometimes you might want to do that, but in general, you just want to set them out in the in, in the environment uh, where there's a uh, at least some air movement. You don't want to put a badge in still air because you have to have some minimum amount of air movement in a room. So usually we would set those out. Sometimes a minimum of eight hours would be fine, but in general we usually try to get 24 hours. So set them out, um, you know, whatever time one day and stop at at that same time the next day. And you've got a good sample, but you can get, you know, a, A quantifiable sample to meet those levels
1: in eight hours, though. Okay. Well, that's interesting. What I was kind of trying to—what I'm trying to do is kind of set up for the second half of the interview here and and talk a little bit more about your your IAQ uh, survey program that you've been working on, and I think it's fairly new. Uh, But let's take a short break right here, and we have to thank our sponsors, pay a few bills. We'll be right back with the second half with Mr. Bruce Jacobs. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
0: The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, great sensing solutions who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them
0: at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com, and of course, our marquee sponsors,
1: Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right.
1: This is Radio Joe Hughes back with my co-host, the Z-Man, and today's guest, Mr. Bruce Jacobs, president of Industrial Hygiene Consulting, Inc. Bruce, do we have you back on the line? Very good. I am here. Welcome back. Hey, we, um, You know, one of the things that I know you've been working on, I think it's fairly recently here, is the um, IAQ Index. It's a... Uh, 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 an an IAQ index, a survey mechanism. I I can't recall exactly what that's called. You have like a a kit that people can buy, I guess, to do. Is it a screen, you would call it, for indoor air quality?
3: That's right, yes. Um, This is a concept that I had been thinking about for some time and finally had an opportunity at this point in my career to actually try to uh, do something with it. Um, I'm trying to... uh, See if there's other people that might be interested in this approach. I mean, from my perspective, it's a good screening tool. Um, I've established, you know, that there are other kits out there that allow people to do essentially do-it-yourself uh, air quality sampling. Uh, but you know, the approach I'm coupling, you know, a kit with is actually coming up with an index that helps uh, communicate the. Um, Uh, exposure levels that somebody might have in their house, school, or uh, workplace, and make sense of of all that data. I I think that's one of the biggest issues people, the the general public, has a problem with is understanding um, IAQ data, and so I'm hoping this index helps uh, alleviate that for some people. So basically I, I pattern it after um, what the EPA has for their ambient air quality index that's been around for some time now where the EPA has monitoring stations and looks for some of the more common uh, ambient air air pollutants and comes up with uh, their own rating scale based on that. And so I've developed an approach, uh, a similar approach, where you sample for uh, common indoor uh, contaminants, and so I have the IAQ index that uh, is color-coded. You know, it has a uh, standard uh, red, yellow, green, even there's a black in there for some toxic contaminants, uh, color rating uh, system, and also a numerical system going from zero to 100. So, uh, yeah, th- it is new, and I'm starting to try to get... Uh, some publicity about it, let more and more people know that it's available and see if uh, if it can help people. I've started using it in my own practice and getting feedback, and I'm hoping that I can uh, get feedback from other people as well.
0: What sort of cost is involved with the kit? You know, if I'm a homeowner, and uh, I mean, I, I suspect that I might need more than one kit depending on the size of my home. If I had a large home, uh, you know maybe three thousand square feet you know what i need more of these kits as opposed to if i you know lived in a condo which might be a thousand square feet yeah
3: yeah that would be a um, a different approach but the basic kit um uh depending on the number of contaminants and parameters that you want to sample for runs anywhere from 149 to 289 per kit uh, you know, if somebody has a different um, need uh, that you know, like you talked about, perhaps a large house where maybe they wanted to do a special study where they didn't want to buy six kits and have six different reports, they could certainly just contact IAQ Index. I have the website www.iaqindex.com, and they can just send a question in, and we can try to devise uh, special kits for, the, for those people uh, or even um, add different parameters. You know, the beauty of the index is, you know, I've developed it to start out with for a handful of contaminants, but it can be um, opened up to a wide variety. Anything we can sample, we can include in the index, basically.
0: Now, for this $149 to $289, does that include the analysis from the laboratory? Yes, it does. Okay, gotcha.
3: Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a full package, so it includes all the shipping to the consumer and back, uh, includes the laboratory costs and then um, any costs associated with the report. So that includes your analysis report, the shipping, so everything's included.
1: Okay. And let's let's just review real quick for listeners what the basic parameters are in the, in the. The base kit, the 149 kit, Bruce, can you go over those for us?
3: Yeah, for, uh, for 149, which I call the basic kit, it includes a, um, a sampler for carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, uh, volatile organic compounds, and molds. So for the basic kit, you can get those uh, four different parameters. Now for VOCs, the, the volatile organics, uh, that's a total uh, volatile organic analysis. It does not, for $149, we don't include speciation and look for you know the, the different VOCs. It's a total VOC number. And then you can add formaldehyde and radon. So that, those are the uh, parameters that can be added. So a full kit with those four CO, CO2, VOCs, and molds, you can also add radon and formaldehyde, and that uh, gets the price to the 289.
0: You know, it seems like you have some bases covered. You know, you have a variety of chemicals there, and you have biologicals. Um, mm-hmm. What about particulate? Um, you know, have you given any thought to you know, something that you know they could wave into the air or whatever in order to figure out exactly you know what might what particulate. Uh, um, you know, might be floating uh, around. Well, I mean, at,
3: at this point, I don't offer a kit to sample particulates, but um, you know, certainly I can work with people, organizations, what have you, to come up to you know help them use the IEQ index approach if they have their own uh, internal sampling methods, if they have a real time instrument, or they're doing their own analytical. Monitoring, I can work with um, a company or a consulting firm that wants to, um, you know, if they find that the IAQ index approach would help them in their business and explaining data to their customers, then we can, you know, work and establish criteria for particulates, ozone, uh, you name the contaminant, whatever is being sampled. I can work with them. I just don't. Um, have a kit where I can uh, send out um, a particulate sampler at this
1: point. Well, let's let's take a, at least one, if not a couple, of these base ones and, and maybe go into a little more detail. So, for instance, um, uh, let's do the total VOCs. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at one number basically encompassing numerous different volatile organic compounds that could be found in a home. What's the... First of all, how do how do the consumers sample for the total VOCs?
3: Yeah, the uh, the sampler for the gases, and this includes VOCs, CO, and CO two, is a grab sample. So it's a um, a glass vial that again is going to act. It's going to sample by diffusion, and because it has such a, uh, it's a small glass vial, and it has an open top. So there's a lot of area for the gases to diffuse into. So it only takes a matter of a few minutes, really, for the, uh, the gases to diffuse and displace whatever uh, air uh, was contained in it initially. So it's essentially a displacement of the room air you're, you're setting it out in with the air that we would ship out in the vial. So that only takes a few minutes so you can set that out on a table wherever you want in the, uh, in the area you're concerned with. And after a period you know, of 10 minutes or so, you can uh, recap the vial, send it back, and uh, uh, the analysis is performed and gets you all those numbers. It gets you a number for carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and total VOCs, all with that one small sample.
1: And do you have people put it in a specific... I noticed you mentioned in, a, in an area of concern. Do you give them some directions along with that? Like, you know, don't, yeah, I mean, don't put your perfume next we to We have it uh,
3: <laughs> sampling instructions that come with the kits. Um, basically, we uh, encourage people to, um, you know, identify, you know, the particular room, like if you're doing a house where you'd want to do that, where it's people that spend a lot of time, like a living room or family room or maybe a, uh, a bedroom, and then, um, you know, have go ahead and keep up normal activities. You know, operate your HVAC system as normal, and just uh, just standard precautions about keeping the sampler away from sources. And we give you know typical sources for some of these contaminants: CO, CO two, and VOCs. Um, so you know, ordinarily we're interested in the uh, the. Uh, general air quality not the air quality close to a combustion source say like a fireplace or a gas appliance so we warn people about you know not putting it right next to a gas appliance and then um you know talking about vocs let people know, you know that you know really you don't want to use it at the time you're doing uh, cleaning with the spray cleaners So, I mean, if they do, it would be a good opportunity maybe to test to see what the levels of VOCs are when using cleaners, but normally people are interested in what's in the air, you know, in a normal time period, not when cleaning or uh, other operations are going on. So we have these general precautions uh, about where to place the sampler, activities that uh, probably would not, be good to be carrying on during the sampling that could skew the results away from a uh, kind of an average uh, exposure.
1: And then maybe you could review for listeners the the index for that particular parameter for the total VOCs.
3: Okay, yeah, well, that's um, that's one index that um, you know is based on kind of limited research. It's an area uh, that. Know, people are interested in doing research on, but probably our best research comes from uh, Scandinavia right now, and um, some researchers over there have been able to um, look at the total VOC levels and come up with uh, levels where, uh, you know, people should not experience significant irritation, uh, and levels where indoor air quality complaints could be more, you uh, Forthcoming as VOC level total VOC levels increase. So for for the index that we prepared, and again it's based on our information that's available from these uh, current researchers as well as uh, the laboratory, um, uh, their background data uh, as well. So synthesizing all the available information, what we are stating in the index, is that if you have total VOCs less than one part per million, we say you should be good to go. That's in our color code green. If you have total VOCs between one and ten parts per million, that's our uh, yellow category indicating that, um, you know, you may be at risk of having some indoor air quality complaints. There may be sources that you want to uh, identify and try to figure out how to reduce, and then if you're over, if you're over 10 parts per million with total VOCs, we, we've uh, established that as the red category and uh, an area that uh, certainly uh, indicates that you, you're probably going to be having indoor air quality complaints, and uh, some some methods to reduce exposures are appropriate there.
1: Okay, and I I, I don't recall for certain but I don't think there was a black for VOCs is that correct
3: right that's right yeah we've got black for a few of the, uh, the uh, contaminants that um, you know have known toxic levels for total VOCs since we don't know you know let's say we're, if we were sampling for benzene we'd be able to come up with a black level indicating you know you've got overexposure and it toxic effects are possible with total VOCs we don't have enough data. At this point, maybe never will to say that toxic effects are possible. Uh, so we're just indicating, you know, indoor air quality complaints are likely, sensory irritations likely, those kind of issues. So for carbon, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and formaldehyde, we're able to establish some quote-unquote toxic levels, that is, levels above um uh, known uh, permissible exposure limits, et cetera. And so if we're above those, then we establish that as a black category for those contaminants that uh, that, that where those levels exist.
1: And what, let's go through that real quick, if you would, before we go to our roundup. Uh, CO, I forget what the number was for the black on CO. Yeah,
3: yeah, so if you're above 25 parts per million, that's the level we've established for the you know, black or toxic level that's a, um, the lowest level um, that's recommended by the various health organizations for um, uh, um, average carbon monoxide exposures over an eight-hour period.
1: Okay. And did you say formaldehyde, too, I believe was one?
3: Yeah, so for, for formaldehyde, if you're above 0.3, 0.3 parts per million. So we start at a green level of less than... 0.05 parts per million and is green and if you're above 0.3 that would be a toxic level for formaldehyde
1: Okay. and was now CO2 there wouldn't be a toxic well I guess there is a toxic level but it would be astronomical yeah, you'd you so.
3: you <laughs> be hard pressed to find that at indoor <laughs> air level but certain, since we do sample for it we've established that level just in case we should ever run into it that would be 5,000 part, parts per million
1: okay Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, you know, what we'd like to do here. Oh, well, I'll, I'll do mine on the roundup. At this point, we typically go to what we call a roundup. We've got about 10 minutes left. We'll bring in Dr. Wow, um, Dr. Dietrich Wow, who you met before the show. He's our technical yes. director. I'm sure he'll have some comments. And then uh, we go once around the table, ask one final question, and we wrap it up. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up Move him on, move him on, hit him up Raw high, cut him out, ride him in Ride him in, let him out, cut him out Ride him in, raw Now I know I'm going to get you a new intro music when we get to the new studio.
2: Oh well, I can send you quite a few pieces of music which I like
1: very much.
2: Dear, I know this from Beethoven to jazz and everything in between.
1: I I tried to break a little bit early here for the roundup because I know there's this is a subject that I'm sure you are interested in and, and have a few comments on.
2: Sure. Sure, there are a couple of comments I have, and, uh, you know, I'm all in favor of passive sampling, and once they are calibrated, and I know the big companies who are selling those and renting those and uh, the laboratories, there's nothing wrong with it. On the other hand, if I come into a place and I hang a pump which weighs a pound and a half on somebody, uh, I don't give a damn whether he likes it or not. Some of them are complaining that my sampling pump is too loud. Those are the guys who have Harley Davidson's. <laughs> uh, yeah, they really complain. Oh, during lunchtime, I hear that thing hum. So whenever I take samples, I put one on. They said, I have to wear this thing. All day long. <laughs>
1: so you wear that's one too. Five huh?
2: minutes, I don't even know that I have it on there. That's right. But, uh, that is a typical thing, and I don't give a damn. I'm there <laughs> for their interest, not my. I couldn't give a damn what the concentrations are.
1: <laughs> now that's always for um, personal sampling, for usually regulatory compliance, correct?
2: Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, It could be anything, but yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I have been doing that 40 years ago in coal mines. And the nice thing is, and I tell that to the other guys, I said, go into a coal mine and see what a coal miner has to wear every day. He has to have a self-rescue on there. He has his tools on his belt. And he has a battery that weighs at least five pounds for his cap lamp. Uh, uh, So he doesn't complain. In fact, if I hang (laughs) another pump on him, he doesn't care. (laughs) You won't know
1: the difference, huh? Uh, Yeah. uh, What else did you have, Dieter? I know you keep a little list there.
2: uh, But that is all right. Um, I kind of like the idea of being able to tell somebody that their house is good, bad, or indifferent. I have a hard time telling the little old uh, how, uh, homeowner what a part per million is and a part per billion. In fact, I sometimes have problems teaching that to graduate students. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so yeah, maybe if you give them like the air pollution index, which we don't publish anymore in Pittsburgh. We're one of the first places in the country 40 years ago. Uh, to have the air pollution index, or whatever it was called, I don't see it anymore. Now
1: that's pretty much what you based this on, isn't it, Bruce?
3: Yeah, that's where I guess I initially got the idea. You know, If, if, sure. EPA, if the EPA can do this for contaminants in the ambient air, why not do something similar for the indoor air?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, there's no problem. The other thing is I like that. You must have listened to my lectures from years ago. <laughs> I told everybody that if you're below 1 ppm, you don't have a problem.
3: <laughs> that, what? well,
2: whatever you do is don't peel an orange, don't eat um, a <laughs> banana, and don't cook coffee in the morning. All of them give you <laughs> the <old laughs> Yes, And uh, yeah, you got to watch out for that. Uh, but like I said, I think I like it. Did I say the 20, I usually sample for 24 hours, too, in office buildings, overnight, like an area sample. On the other hand, practically speaking, if you don't get anything in eight hours, I don't think you have a huge problem. (laughs) Okay, okay. The other thing is, with the carbon monoxide, which is one of my favorite subjects, uh, I raise an eyebrow... When I see in a house three or four ppm of carbon monoxide, I agree. I that. know it has no physiological effect whatsoever, unless you are half dead. And you know, <laughs> it, it really doesn't do anything to you. Well,
1: it sounds like I would be... like
2: to know
3: where it comes from.
1: I think so uh, it,
3: it just indicates there's a source somewhere. That yeah,
1: a,
2: organic,
3: and I you know. want to know that where that one is.
1: What's your yellow on, on carbon monoxide, Bruce?
3: Yeah, I I start at three, so I go with the yellow range being from three to nine. Okay. You're the, um, uh, the, the, fine there. Now
2: you are at the outdoor air pollution index from EPA on carbon monoxide at nine ppm.
3: That's right. That's why and I, I know that, that has
2: no effect on anybody. Besides, it takes it takes two days to come to equilibrium. <laughs> Uh, if I were to expose somebody to uh, to 9 ppm of carbon monoxide, it takes about 40 hours until he comes to 99% of equilibrium. So that's, yeah. But like I said, I think you are on the right track over there. Hey, if it's there, I would like to know about it and where it is coming from. Okay.
1: Well, that's great. Uh,
2: I, I like your, uh, yeah, the pump. Yeah, like I said, with the pump sampling, I have no excuse. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I, uh, Joe knows that. In fact, I just was there. In fact, I have the report in front of me. I go four times a year to a uh, foundry where I take air samples for eight hours, and in the and I'm doing that for five years. And in the beginning, oh, I have to wear that stand thing all day long again. <laughs> uh- four times. And they have three shifts. So the chances of you doing that four times a year is virtually impossible. <laughs> so maybe you have to do that twice a year. For eight hours, you have to wear that pump, which weighs a pound and a half. I'm charging ten of them right now from the last trip. <laughs> wow. And uh, I have no more. And I talked to the plant manager. I said, if I hear that one more time, fire that guy. <laughs> and... Um, They finally came around, and I said, I'm doing that for you guys. I couldn't give a damn what you... If you want to go to the bathroom, turn the pump off, and then give it back to me after eight hours and tell me that you wore it eight hours, fine with me. It doesn't bother me. You are telling me that you wore it for eight hours. Whatever the result is, that's what it is. And Bruce mentioned that also. When you have a sampler... Don't put it somewhere where we know a little bit higher concentrations. Yeah. No, don't yep. put it there. Put it in a normal room. Put it in the middle of your living room, uh, where there is no hot water heater and uh, and a furnace or something like that. So I think that's great, uh, okay. and 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 I think we are on the right track to to tell people, hey, if there is a problem, and and Bruce is not saying. The minute I get into the yellow range, you know, we have to call the undertaker. He's not saying that. But he also says exact, that's exactly my feeling. If there is something, I would like to
3: know where it comes from. Okay.
1: Bruce, any comment on that? I mean, it sounds like no, you're in I appreciate in
3: those comments. It uh, sounds like a... Um uh, hygienist I would, would have liked to have sat under his teaching, so uh, <laughs> I appreciate uh, his
1: comments. And uh, I'm,
3: I'm retired now, no <laughs> more. <laughs>
2: uh, he <laughs> no, still helps out.
1: True. Yeah, we'll still do not the indoor true. environment I will be
2: teaching with Joe at the end of the month, uh, uh, at the end of August. I'm teaching, I'm, I'm there for probably four or five days, uh, indoor air quality stuff. And we do talk about formaldehyde and ozone and... Um, and uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and all and see, all the other good things, and particulate matter. Absolutely. And particulate matter is an interesting thing to 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 measure, and obviously the EPA is very much interested in that. It's a little bit more difficult, and the analysis is a little bit more difficult. Yeah. What do I do with that? Well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many particles I measured and, 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 and sized in my life, hundreds of thousands from coal
0: mine samples.
1: <laughs> it's a tough question that Cliff came up with. Hey, let's uh, we're, we're no, going to run I'm out I'm of time I'm here, I'm but, I'm but I'm go not, ahead, That's Cliff.
0: okay. Go ahead. No, but I'm thinking about it, and I don't know that it would be that hard to sample. You need something like a sw- fly swatter. You need some sort of clean media. You know, that's on there and you give a swipe. It's called a
2: filter. Yeah, okay. It's called a filter and we have the particulate counters. Right. But particulate counters that we have for three thousand dollars.
1: Yeah.
2: The problem is it counts all the
0: particles. It doesn't tell you. Yeah. What and, it is.
1: And it doesn't save them either. <laughs> They've <laughs> got some yeah, of them but gone. You would have had it, but you have them
0: impacted, <laughs> you know, essentially like right. on, well, I agree on, on tape or whatever. Yeah. So through microscopy, well, you know, you could look at you it. You could and, also
1: take dust samples and get some idea of the particulate load right, in a absolutely. home. Now, I'm, I'm, that's what my follow-up is, Bruce. Are, are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'm just, I'm curious about your thoughts on the army. Uh, environmental Relative Moldiness Index from EPA for for mold and um, mold contamination in homes.
3: Well, I have not used it. I mean, I've I've um, studied it a little bit. I um, yeah, I think it's um, you know a, an approach that uh, sounds like it was developed in the laboratory um, that. I'm sure it's it's a good index, but I I just have a difficult time when I read about it and try to determine how I can use it in my practice uh, both effectively and uh, from an approach standpoint as well as cost, and I have not been able to figure out for myself where I can fit it in and uh, make it work.
1: It wouldn't work in your screening tool because of the expense, I assume. I mean, it's oh, three hundred right, bucks. Right. Now you do have a tape lift in there, and I'm curious, right. where do you suggest people take that tape lift? I mean, it's not, you know, again, this is a screen. You're not telling them they're it's not right. not good. It's not bad necessarily. You know, it, there's a chance you're looking. It's a screen. Where do you yeah, tell them to? The well, it,
3: yeah, we all have those little uh, places that we never get around to dust. So uh, if you have a uh, a bookshelf, a uh, storage cabinet, the backside of your desk that doesn't get dusted very often, somewhere where some reasonable level of dust has accumulated and deposited. And that's where I recommend they go to uh, perhaps a door frame, uh, window ledge, wherever they can find an area that has escaped uh, somebody's recent dusting efforts.
1: Now- Maybe you could just quickly give us an idea of uh, you do um, a direct microscopic exam on it of some type. I guess they look at it. You send it to a lab. What kind of report do they get back? Is it just mold spores, or is, do you also include other particulate in there?
3: Well, it, yeah, I mean, certainly we could include other particulate matter if um, you know if I have information from the um, uh, client. That indicates you know, there could be other uh, concerns they have, like with fiberglass or what have you, uh, deposition. But right now it's, it's focused on molds, so I rely a lot, of course, on the laboratory when they uh, do their microscopic analysis to uh, help us determine whether you know it's a, uh, a normal mold level. It would fall into the green category. If uh, there's elevated levels of common molds, then that goes up into the uh, the yellow category. I've reserved the red category for when we um, have um, evidence of some hydrophilic molds indicating water damage in the area like stachybotrys and catomium. So um, uh, those are the three levels I use for mold, a normal mold, uh, spectrum of molds on a tape lift would be green, elevated levels of common molds would be yellow, and then uh, when you get into some molds indicating water damage in the area, uh, then that's going to be up in the red category.
0: Okay. Cliff? Yeah, just Bruce, I was just wondering, you know, over the course of your career, whether there was a specific contaminant or pollutant that you feel is just understudied you know there's something about about it that bothers you and you know you think people are missing and uh i just wondered whether there was one
3: Hmm. interesting question i I guess no particular contaminant comes to mind i'm sure they're out there but you know what did come to mind when you said that uh, It's not; it's understudied, but I think people don't give it as much respect as they should as radon. Uh, I'm convinced that uh, radon is probably the uh, the most hazardous indoor contaminant in general that uh, people face, and because um, you know it's colorless, odorless, et cetera, as we all know, people don't appreciate it. But uh, I knew whenever I was first. Uh, reviewing the early radon literature as a toxicologist. From my toxicology background, I was impacted by how close uh, indoor radon levels can come to those that were studied in mines where you know this uh, issue of lung cancer first came about. So high levels of radon in a home are very close to those that we know are cancer-causing in mines. Mm-hmm. And so I was struck with toxicological literature. A lot of times with our data, we are, you know, orders, many orders of magnitude uh, below human exposures than what the the lab rat or whatever is exposed to. And so, you know, we take an abundance of caution. But uh, with radon, there's not that, uh, in my mind, a safety level like that with radon. Hmm. So that's how I would
1: uh, answer that question. Thank you. I'm glad you brought up the question, Cliff. That's uh, that's very interesting to me, and I'll think more about that and uh, probably add some emphasis in in some of the future courses we do go over right on. But I, you know I, I keep hearing more and more about it. And I remember early on there there seemed like I don't know there was a lot more controversy than what you seem to indicate, Bruce, about whether or not the early data indicated the as much need for. Precaution, as um, as what we're we're seeing now again, it seems like there's a renewed emphasis on radon. Do you, why was that? I mean, I'm, I'm not a toxicologist. I didn't look at the data that much. What what were the people who were skeptics? What were their what was their complaint?
3: Well, I'm not sure in total. I um, I believe some of it had to do with this uh, theory of I think it's called radiation hormesis, where a low background level of radiation is actually good for you. I know I ran into that uh, talking to some of my health physics friends, and, um, you know, there, there may be something to it, you know, some background radiation. Uh, cosmic radiation may be good for you, but, you know, again, I was just struck by uh, the known data we have with coal miners and lung cancer, And the fact that uh, the levels in homes can approach those levels and not give us much of a margin of safety. So, Mm you know, I think it's a combination of people thinking maybe a little bit of radiation isn't bad because they get radiation from taking airplane flights and from going to the dentist. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of being a little bit familiar with radiation and not dying from it uh, yet and not smelling or tasting radon. (laughs)
1: hmm okay that's interesting well i tell you I, you know i'm really glad we did this show we ran a little bit over i apologize for that i, I hope i didn't make you late for anything oh no i'm but, fine uh, thank you we enjoyed having you on i, I want to thank you for joining us um i wasn't you know i wasn't that familiar with the index and and with your career and i'm really glad that uh, paul cochran by the way uh, i want to mention him uh put us sure. together here and you know very good look forward to meeting you in the future
3: yeah, I, uh, I appreciated the time, and um, hopefully we can uh, get people to be uh, concerned about indoor air, but not overly concerned. That's, uh, I think that's the balance we have to have.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the thing, you know, that I'd like to leave with is, I, I, and I, I know you may want to add to this, that I don't think you're saying that if, if it's green Necessarily there is no indoor air quality problem, just the, the screening process that you provided didn't find one. Right, um, and
3: again, it's just a screen, so um, you know, it doesn't take the place of um, having a competent investigator come out and do, a, do an assessment, but it's an option uh, for people to, um, to use as a first step.
1: I I appreciate. It. I'm glad I asked because I, that's really something I wanted to make sure we emphasized on our way out here. Yes. All right. Thanks again. I want, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes thanking today's guest, uh, Mr. Bruce Jacobs, president of Industrial Hygiene Consulting and developer of the Indoor Air Quality Index and. Uh, We uh, enjoyed having you on today. I want to thank the Z-Man. Great day again. Uh, It was a long week, but, you know, it ended well.
0: Uh, Yeah, it it is, is. and the weekend's approaching. Yes, it
1: is. And, uh, of course, our our engineer, Roxy V. Good job, Val. Not too many skips today. Of course, uh, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. I think next week we're going to have Cole Stanton on, Cole with Fiberlock, and uh, he's been working on the S500, 500, S520, and another S something at the IICRC. Uh, I think we might talk a little trauma scene cleanup, some water damage, some biocides, some a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Looking forward to having Cole on next week and the week after that. Looking forward to having uh, we're going to have Don Weeks and Carl Grimes back from the in, Indoor International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate Conference in Australia. We'll get a report back on any current events occurring there. And uh, look forward to having you all back here next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
2: Yesterday.
0: Has been another IAQ radio production.